no time like now to begin, so let's do that. I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. My name is Richard Grazzi. I am a physician. I am not an ethicist. I am not a rav. I am not a halachist. I am not a posek. I am just simply a physician who deals with patients day in and day out. Um, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, if you know what that is. We are fertility people. I also, for better or for worse, uh, have a little situation brewing in my office today. One of our laboratory uh, machines that measures hormones in the blood um, went on the blink, and uh, they're repairing it right now. So in about an hour and a half, I'm going to have to take a little break so that I can call in and get the test results and do some decision-making with my own staff. So um, I guess that will be the time to take a break. Another thing, I have never given a three-hour presentation before. Um, So you'll excuse me if I look new at this type of situation. Um, Last thing is that... I really didn't have a good sense of who the audience would be and I still don't have a good sense of who the audience is and I really want to try to speak to whoever's in the room. Um, Judy couldn't give me a sense of who would be coming and what your backgrounds would be. So that may be responsible for the thickness of the packet that I'm giving you. Um, Who in the room is familiar is is familiar with reading uh, Hebrew response literature. Just a show of hands. That not everyone. Okay, fine. Is there anyone in the room who cannot read Hebrew? Okay, so you can listen. To, you don't object to listening to it with an explanation. Okay. Um, I also didn't know what the layout of the room would be. The one thing that I was told was we're not set up for PowerPoint. So I have the handouts. I sort of was thinking that we'd all be sitting around the table going over some text, but I can work like this if everybody is more comfortable that way. You could push tables together. Okay, well, let's start out now because some people are eating and some people are getting their things together and we can sort of go with the flow and if everyone will permit me, can I get a little comfortable because three hours seems like a dauntingly long time. Uh, Okay. The other thing is I'm hoping that this will be um, interactive and that you will stop me lots of times, raise your hands, challenge me, and, um, and we can go on from there. By the way, if you ask me medical questions, I think I'll have the answers pretty much all the time. If you ask me halakhic questions, I'll probably get it about 50% of the time, and that's just because that's my specialty. I am n- not a, a, halakh- a halakhic authority, by any stretch of the imagination. But that makes me probably more like most of you in the room. I am approaching the topic of fertility therapy from the point of view of a person who is practically engaged with getting couples and single people, I have to say sometimes, to build their families. 
and I am an advocate for them, um, much more so than just uh, doing a cold halachic analysis. And that may come through in some of the things that I have to say. So let's start at the very beginning and go through just briefly the uh, page of the Gemara from Nida, which I have um, Xeroxed for you and underlined for you. And I'll read it real quickly in the Hebrew and then, and then um, just go through the translation. The text says, Tanura Banan, Shalosha Shutafin Yesh Ba'adam. There are three partners, and the translation is on the next page. The three partners in the creation of a person, Hakadosh Barachuva Aviv God and the father and the mother. Aviv Mazruya Haloben Shemimenu Atzamot Begidim Mitziporaim Umuach Shiberosho. This is a this is a very common um, uh, conception of how conception occurs uh, in the days before reproductive physiology was actually known. And one of the things that should be apparent to you certainly by the time we get into the first hour, is that, the, is that Chazal were only able to deal with the facts on the ground as they knew them in their time. And what was the understanding of how human beings reproduced in the days when the Gemara was being compiled? It was codified around the year 500. So, for all of the early years, from the time of Hippocrates, who lived sometime during the Bait HaRishon, all the way to the time of the, the Gemara, we know what people thought about reproduction. Ha, ha, does anybody, is, is anybody familiar with that? What was, what was their empiric evidence? They, had, they knew that there was semen, because they could see it. And that's the Loben the white matter and they knew that there was menstrual blood because they could see that too and they also knew that when a woman stopped menstruating nine months later she'd have a baby so the empiric evidence was that something happened with that white substance that went into the woman and it must have somehow interacted with the red substance which was saved up during the period of nine months or the, the time period of nine months and those two together went into forming the baby. T just imagine if all the things that you know now about reproduction just went away and you started out with a blank slate. Yeah, that was how they had to think of things. That was their empiric evidence and in fact that is the the uh, viewpoint that's expressed by Hippocrates and, uh, and, and Aristotle in his writing and some of the early scientific uh, people who lived and published in the first century BC and the, and, and the, uh, and the, and the first century um, ACE and the second century which brought us the first uh, textbook of gynecology. They knew some anatomy but they really didn't know anything f uh, about reproductive physiology and they certainly didn't know anything about sperm 
and they didn't know about eggs. Those were non-existent at that non-existent at that time. And by the way, people in those days also believed in spontaneous generation that you could you could get yesh me'ayin, so to speak. So there was white matter and there was and there was red matter. So the the white matter is is the source of the bones, the vessels, the fingernails, the brain, and the white of the eye. Imo mazrat odem shemimenu or basar usarot v'shachor shebaayin. So the the mother seminates the red substance from which are derived other parts of the body. And then the Gemara goes on to say, "Vakadosh baruchu notein baruach unshama the spirit uh, of life." Essentially, all of the sentences are, are provided by God. When he, the, the time comes for a person to die, God takes his portion, and he takes the physical part and uh, brings it back to its source, which is basically the ground. That is the concept of human reproduction that is with us until the time, literally, of the Aharonim, because Rabbi Yosef Karo, and my dates are not complete, but he was the last Rishon, and he lived, uh, he, he wrote the Shulchan Aruch, at the end of the 16th century. And it wasn't until a hundred years later that the microscope was invented. And the first living cell that was seen through the microscope was sperm. Because it was easy. It was, a, it was tissue that was alive that didn't need to be dissected out. That was at the end of the 17th century. It was not until the beginning of the 19th century that people that the egg was described. So we're in a curious spot. We have a very, very sophisticated idea of how the whole process works. Don't lay that on the Rabbanim if they do not write with equal sophistication. But it's a beautiful Gemara, nevertheless, of the three Shutafin, the three people, the three, not three people, the two people and God, coming together and <coughs> making a new person. Today, however, there's really a fourth partner involved, at least for couples who find themselves with reproductive difficulty, and that is the fertility doctor. And it's a very serious position to be in, especially when we're trying to do what we do in ways that conform to halakha, and there is not a day that goes by when what we need to do in a clinical sense does not, in a very real way, challenge what, um, what the couple believes in and what their rabbi believes in. And that's why, fortunately, we have a halakhic process that speaks to those dilemmas and we do problem solving every day. Uh, just one other thing before I, uh, before I uh, call on you. Just to tell you a little bit about my practice, um, I practice in Brooklyn <coughs> and uh, I run a comprehensive fertility center where we do things like uh, 
in vitro fertilization and artificial insemination and um, egg donation and uh, some surrogacy and pre-implantation genetic diagnoses and all of these words carry tremendous halakhic um, consequences. My practice is about two-thirds Jewish and of those Jewish patients about half are from in some way going through the entire spectrum so it's, and it's a busy place and it's a complicated place because there is no and this is what one of the points that I want to bring out today there is no halakhically uniform approach to many of the things that we do and so uh, when we're faced with questions a lot of the answers that come to us depend on who the question is directed to and that can be terribly confusing for patients who find themselves in need of halakhic advice and they may be getting uh, different opinions from, from, from a lot of different sources I'm sorry you had a question I, I, will, I will not correct you on that okay so, so our specialty has now been biblically validated thank you very much Okay. Also, well, well, one other side, uh, Judy Tenzer gave me this article uh, just when I walked in. It's a reprint from 1985. It's a newspaper article about fertility and Jewish law. And uh, <coughs> they, it's an article about, uh, about um, Rabbi Tendler, professor of biology at YU. I'm sure you're all fami familiar with Rabbi Tendler. And uh, some of the approaches that he was considering in 1985 first IVF baby was born in July of 1978 so this is really is still in the early days of IVF when it was a as he describes a complicated and very risky procedure it is not a risky procedure by the way today um, but he speaks about IVF and artificial insemination with the donor sperm and then he speaks a, about embryo donation and uh, as a substitute for egg donation as it was just then being described and uh, just let me read this in this procedure a couple has sexual relations and once conception has occurred the entire contents of the pregnant woman's uterus is washed out and placed into the uterus of another woman who cannot conceive because of either partner's infertility this procedure has a 40% success rate which at the time is astounding and is replacing in vitro fertilization as a preferred method this is a historical note this procedure is no longer ever done so what seemed to be replacing IVF is, uh, is no longer ever done for various medical reasons yes Okay, let, let, let me uh, just, I don't want to get into the details, but I just said it's not a very risky procedure. There's no procedure that has no risk. Uh, but all, virtually all women who go through in vitro fertilization take a hormonal therapy in order to increase their egg production. Um, there have been at least 15 gigantic studies that I'm familiar with on the safety of the long term because short term there is a risk of something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome uh, which is preventable basically if monitored uh, correctly 
But in terms of long-term risk, which is, I think, what you're thinking, what you're suggesting that something happened to her breast. So, so let me finish. So the long-term consequences of taking natural injectable fertility hormones has been examined in many, many long-term longitudinal studies involving thousands of women, case-controlled and uh, cohort studies, if any there are any scientists in the room and there is no study that suggests any increase in breast cancer ovarian cancer or uterine cancer from any of those medications now understand very well that doesn't mean that if you take those medications you're prevented from getting cancer they don't prevent cancer but as best as medical science knows today they do not cause cancer. And by the way, breast cancers take decades to develop. If a woman takes fertility hormones today and next month gets a breast cancer, that's a, that's a logical connection that she can make in her mind. That doesn't mean that they're causing the cancer. The other thing that you should know is that, and I think it's important for women to know just in general, is that there is one thing that we know about that will prevent ovarian cancer with certainty and possibly breast cancer as well and that is having children and the protective effect of childbirth is there for each subsequent pregnancy it, it lowers the risk each time a woman has a baby so to the extent that, that fertility therapy is successful that does in effect decrease risk of certain types of cancer but again that doesn't mean that it protects you entirely. But the science is there. Uh, I don't have a particular agenda today to discuss, you know, the fertility industry or what has been touted as the unregulated fertility industry, which, by the way, is the most highly regulated medical specialty in the United States, um, or the way that uh, uh, doctors exploit women, donors in particular, um, that's not my interest today, although if you'd like to invite me back, I'll be happy to give you the, uh, the uh, truth um, as I see it anyway. But uh, I don't want to go off course. I understand just from the body language, I understand that there's some concerns there. But you should know, and I'll say this um, n not, not for myself, um, but, but it is true. What we do every day, the people who work in my field, is very serious and has extraordinary consequences for the health, the psychological health, the sexual health, the marital relationship, and ultimately the generations of people that are going to come from the one baby that we hope to come into the world. I don't think it's possible to be engaged in this type of work without having the best interests of your patients at heart every single minute of the day. And, and what we do, we don't do it alone. We work with very large staffs of nurses and scientists, etc. In order to do things that would ultimately be not in the interest of the patient or exploitive of the patient or unethical would involve really a conspiracy of enormous magnitude. And I don't think it's possible. We're, we're going to speak to that because that is some of the concerns that are raised in the responsive literature from the Rabbanim 
and uh, it, it in fact affects some of the things that we need to do in our job. But it's not just like going to work every day and, and, and doing your thing. It's a very, very serious business, and I think that, uh, that, that everybody who's involved in this work understands uh, the ramifications of what we do. Um, <coughs> just some basic, some basic uh, facts about infertility. Uh, approximately one in six couples find themselves uh, infertile at some point in their lives. That translates into millions and millions of couples in the United States. Um, we usually wait until 12 months of trying to conceive unprotected inter uh, un uh, intercourse. However, in women who are older, and older we mean not old, we mean older reproductively speaking, usually past the age of 35, we will expedite uh, evaluation and treatment even after six months because biology is not politically correct and the, um, the problem with female reproduction is that, uh, that terrible biological clock, which is a result of the fact that women, that girls are born with their entire egg supply and there's a constant depletion over time and the, the, really the only time when, um, when fertility therapy cannot be successful is when a woman has exhausted her egg supply or she's working with a very, very low egg supply. Even uh, if you take the opposite situation when a man has uh, very few sperm, there are things that we can do. But when a woman is working on a very e small egg supply, it's basically the end of the road, and that's where you have to get into egg donation territory. Um, male factors and female factors are equally uh, responsible for infertility, and approximately 20% of infertility is a result of combined male and female factors, which makes it in incumbent upon uh, physicians who deal with infertility to... Uh, work up the couple simultaneously. Excuse me, I'm just uh, trying to get over a cold. And um, because we have to do that, that brings in a halachic problem almost immediately because doing semen analysis is not just a straightforward thing uh, halachically. I've given you a page here on some historical highlights in, in uh, assisted reproduction and the only reason I did this is really to point out that from the time the microscope was able to identify human sperm until we were able to until there was something that happened clinically which is um, insemination was a hundred years and then the uh, first donor insemination was done a hundred years later. By the way, if you're interested in this, the first insemination was done in England by a doctor by the name of John Hunter. And he was dealing with a couple who's, where the husband had a condition called hypospadias. That's where the, the tip of the urethra, instead of being at the very tip of the penis, is located down below and basically the ejaculation can occur either outside or, or in a place where the, the semen can't get to where it needs to go. So he did artificial insemination. The donor insemination, the first donor insemination was described by Dr. William Pankost who was a uh, professor 
at one of the medical colleges in uh, Pennsylvania. There were many, before the turn of the uh, 20th century, there were many, many medical colleges. And what he described was the difficulty that uh, this particular couple was having. And um, he made a diagnosis that it was a male factor. And he describes in the article, which he actually uh, published in a, a medical journal, that he picked out the best looking medical student male medical student, they were all male in those days, practically, and without the knowledge of the, of the husband, inseminated the wife with the, w with the semen from this medical student, and then goes on to say that uh, after the husband found out about it, he was very happy and pleased, etc., etc. Um, uh, two things, it's almost, oh, it's hard to believe that the husband was happy about it, um, but also is a highly, highly unethical thing to do. Wouldn't certainly not pass muster. As a matter of fact, um, th there was once a doctor by the name of uh, Cecil Jacobson who is currently in jail uh, for inseminating patients with his own sperm. Um, and the halachists, the, the rabbis who write tissue vote about insemination use this as a reason to not permit artificial insemination. And, and certainly it, there seems to be unanimous agreement that if a woman should undergo uh, insemination from a donor without the consent of her husband that that is grounds for immediate divorce. So just a little postscript there. But for the next hundred years, basically, nothing happens. And then in 1978, 26 years ago, the first IVF baby is born. And within the span of 26 years, there's a tremendous explosion in reproductive technologies. There's donor eggs and there's um, cloning and there's uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Does anybody know what that is? Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis means prior to putting the embryo into the womb, we can actually make a genetic diagnosis of the embryo, not only to see if it's a boy or a girl embryo, but also to detect diseases like cystic fibrosis and Tay-Sachs and Marfan syndrome and all kinds of ugly things that, um, that can cause untold grief to a couple even before the pregnancy occurs. So there have been some wonderful things and I think to a certain extent the halakha is struggling to catch up to the technology. And that's only natural because halakha is a conservative system that relies on precedent and it's difficult to find precedent for some of the things that we do. Okay, I've given you on the next page a, a picture of artificial insemination so you know what it is that we're speaking about. Um, artificial insemination is divided up into two categories. One is husband insemination and the other is donor insemination. With husband insemination, when we say artificial insemination, we're generally talking about the procedure that's depicted in this picture, which is intrauterine insemination. In other words, we don't just take the semen specimen from the husband and squirt it into the vagina. That doesn't happen anymore, although that can be done in, this, in the situation when you're using a donor where all you need to do is simulate 
what happens during natural intercourse. But the more common procedure is to do intrauterine insemination, which requires processing of the sperm, and this is important for reasons that I'll get into. It requires processing of the, of the semen specimen in order to separate out the seminal fluid, the liquid, from the actual sperm cells, because you can't put semen into the uterus. It doesn't belong there. It can cause infection. It can cause very bad cramping. So you've got to get rid of that and isolate just the sperm cells, which are suspended in some culture media, a tiny volume of culture media. And then that's brought into the uterus high up just near where the fallopian tubes come out using a very, very thin catheter. And the reason it's important that it's a very thin catheter is because it, there's no dilation of the cervix that's required. It usually causes no bleeding and um, it does not cause a woman to be nida um, just when she undergoes the procedure of insemination. Whether or not she can be inseminated when she is nida, that is a question that comes up all the time, including this morning. Um, okay, so let's get to the first subject, and I've divided up the, uh, the source material. The first section is artificial insemination. The second section is on in vitro fertilization. The third is on um, donor eggs, and the last is on the status of the embryo and particularly uh, fetal reduction procedures. If anybody has an interest in reversing the order or modifying the order or changing the order, please um, let me know because I think this can be kind of fluid. Any questions till now? Okay. The entire discussion about artificial insemination revolves around <coughs> an apocryphal text of Ben Sira. Ben Sira is um, the son and also grandson of Yirmi, excuse me, of Yirmiyahu Hanavi. <coughs> Yirmiyahu Hanavi, as the uh, as the legend has it, um, was forced by. Um, some uh, uh, evil people to, to ejaculate into a bath. He was in a bathhouse. And his daughter subsequently went into that bath and she conceived from her father's sperm. And the resulting child was called Ben Sira, which in Gematria equals Yirmiyahu. I never actually did the math, but if anybody uh, wants to do that, you can let me know if it pans out. And <coughs> the text tells us, and, and it's um, brought down later on by, by Chazal, that Ben Sirah is legitimate in every way. Why? After all, this is an incestuous relationship. No, because no intercourse, no physical contact has taken place and therefore the child is kosher and not considered to be uh, mamzer. Thus giving us the first source for understanding that in order for mamzerut to take hold, 
there needs to be an incestuous relationship that involves physical contact related to that in order for a union of the sperm and eggs to be in the class of forbidden relations there needs to be some physical contact that occurs <coughs> jump to um, the 13th century Rabbi Peretz Ben Eliyahu um, and I have the, the text uh, translated for you here a woman may lie on her husband's sheets but should be careful not to lie on sheets upon which another man slept lest she become impregnated from his sperm and by the way this is talking about a woman who is nida okay a woman who is nida can sleep on the sheets of her husband but not on the sheets of another man why? because she might become impregnated by his sperm now understand again there's a concept of today we don't imagine that somebody's sperm can jump off the sheet and impregnate a woman but this is um, virgin conception is, some, is something that is a concept that does have an established tradition in halachic literature and this text is dealing with that situation <coughs> so why can a woman take the risk of being impregnated while she is still nida by her husband since there is no forbidden intercourse the child is completely legitimate even from the sperm of another okay so Rabbi Peretz brings down in his in, in this ruling that because there is no physical contact there is no there is no concern about a child who will be ben nida who will be, have been conceived while his or her mother is nida <coughs> and the proof of that is the story of ben sirah if there's no physical contact then there is no mamzerut and not only that but because there is no intercourse the child is completely legitimate even if she even if she conceives from the sperm of another man ah but why shouldn't she sleep why does the text tell you she shouldn't sleep on the sheets of another man because we are concerned about the sperm of another man because the child may unknowingly eventually marry his half sister because there's no way of knowing that she conceived by this other person and maybe they will both have children that are around the same age and they'll marry and unwittingly there will be actual uh, incest that occurs so because of that concern for future incest that's the only reason that, that uh, she shouldn't sleep on the sheets of, uh, of, a, of a strange man um, again bringing down this principle that in order for something for the contact of the egg and sperm to be problematic there needs to be physical intercourse and this is going to run through the um, <coughs> literature that we will read through in the next hour now I have because I was not sure that everyone was comfortable reading the Hebrew text 
what I did was I Xeroxed for you a, um, a few pages from the Nishmat Abraham Nishmat Abraham is a um, is a uh, source book of halachot that deal with many many issues written by Professor Abraham Abraham who is alive and well today uh, he himself is a physician and his interest is in medical halakha his books have just recently been uh, been translated into English it's a three volume set if anybody's interested in this field um, and I've Xeroxed a small uh, section that he has on infertility and assisted reproduction and what I would ask you to do just for the next 10 minutes is read through if you turn to page 7 there's some I Xeroxed the whole section because if you're interested there's some interesting things there about the laws that pertain to men and women differently by the way because and it's another principle you should know the law of having children of Peru Urvu the mitzvah of Peru Urvu is a mitzvah that falls upon the man a woman has no mitzvah of Peru Urvu does anybody know why that might be? I know there's some yeshiva students here that yes the more passive participant that that might be one that might be one reason oh that's that that's that's correct that's a that's an accepted that's an accepted principle that childbirth is a very dangerous thing risks involved in all in all of life yes in general you know women generally want children and men have to be domesticated and if you tell the guys they're not the we have an evolutionary biologist in the room <laughs> Well, without her egg, yeah, right. right. Uh, it's interesting that uh, what you say because, you know, I like to be uh, politically correct, and I think of myself as being having an egalitarian core. But I'll tell you that men and women are different, and from the clinician's perspective, because I treat couples. Okay, I'm a I'm a gynecologist, but I treat couples. And it's interesting, from day to day, you see how people approach this tremendous crisis that they have in their lives. Some people come in, they've been married for 10 years, 15 years, it's, it's terrible. And the approach is never the same, never the same. They never see eye to eye. They, have, they bargain and they reach some kind of consensus about how, how they're going to do things. But my conclusion after being in private practice for 18 years is that men and women have virtually nothing in common <laughs> they are they are a different species practically but unfortunately for better or for worse this is how we have to reproduce so but what I tell them and, and I think it's true and I learned this from my patients is that if you, for the woman she can't expect that her husband is going to think the way she does. And the husband can't expect for the wife to think the way he does. It's just 
never, never happens. Just it's because of evolution that uh, you know th- this is this is how we were made. So um, it, it's, it makes it makes the day very interesting. I have to tell you. Anyway, um, <coughs> if you want to turn to page seven and read just two pages, uh, two page no page seven is two a. There's a section there called Artificial Insemination from the Husband. Did they... Page 7 on the top, yes. Uh, forget about... If she put pages on my handout, forget about... I don't have the same handout as you. This is... Okay. okay. Page 7 of the, of the English um, text... Uh, the, read the section on artificial insemination <coughs> and stop on page 9 so we're talking about two pages um, where, where it says a little uh, obtaining the husband's sperm little letter B and I'm giving you this to read because it's a very concise summary of the topic of artificial insemination I think some of you are reading ahead, and that's not fair. Okay, no cheating. All right. So I want to just review some of the highlights of this section. By the way, um, Dr. Abraham, who wrote the book, was a Talmud of Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, who is considered to be one of the great contemporary poskim. He died uh, just a few years ago. So he'll often conclude sections for writing what Rav Shlomo Zalman had, had, uh, had said <coughs> and he considers that to be the last word. But from the start you can see sperm may only be emitted while fulfilling the mitzvah of procreation. Now that's very interesting because the first, from a practical point of view, the first um, a step that we take in the diagnostic evaluation of an infertile couple is usually doing a semen analysis. Why? Because half of infertility is male factor and semen analysis is the least painful test that you can possibly do, right? doesn't hurt. It's cheap and it gives you a lot of information and basically, you know, that's sort of the end organ response. If the sperm is good, there's nothing else to say you can put that to bed and so clinical pathways generally involve that as the first step very difficult to do when you can't get a semen analysis because you can only use sperm for the purposes of procreation so um, sometimes as a practical matter we'll do something called a postcoital test where uh, just around mid-cycle at the time of ovulation the couple will have intercourse and the woman comes in to be examined that test does not tell you a lot about sperm, but it tells you if there are any and if they're alive, but doesn't substitute for the traditional semen analysis. So what we really need to do <coughs> when we're working with couples who are Shomrei Torah Mitzvot is reorder the way in which we do things. And one of the, the um, procedures that we will commonly go through is to set the patient up when time has gone by and it looks like it's indicated to set the patient up to have an insemination done 
and then just as part of the process we take a little bit of the of the seminal fluid and subject it to analysis so we're doing it um, for these patients just according to the letter of the law now let's look at the people who 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 forbid it why do they forbid it after all it's being used for the purpose of procreation okay could be that the sperm in, emitted are wasted yeah that could be but unlikely because we're going to use whatever sperm is there and functional um, it could be that uh, we just don't depend on the doctors basically uh, the doctor may mix the husband's sperm with somebody else's sperm uh, or use the husband's sperm for another patient and simply said the medical establishment cannot be trusted and not only that but there's a, a reason why you can't trust them because they, they, you should suspect that they may do something that they shouldn't be doing with the semen specimen because after all they have something to gain from it and what do they have to gain? a pregnant patient I guess what's their gain from a pregnant patient? another referral of you know a, a, another, another patient or another customer from my perspective it's very unfair because we would never do such a thing but looking at this in a contemporary context you have to think to yourself well what would happen if a doctor decided that he was going to use the husband's sperm uh, and tell him we're going to do an insemination but switch it with a with a sperm donor and what would happen if that doctor would get caught doing such a thing that doctor would A lose his or her license B have an incredibly um, risky malpractice suit on his hands and probably go to jail for fraud so there's a lot to lose in a hundred years ago they may have thought that the doctor had a lot to gain because there was no good way of doing paternity testing but today that principle really could be turned on its head doctors have a lot of lose by, to lose by doing something unethical like that yes the Devray Machiel uh, died in 1910 so this was written at the end of the 19th century <coughs> ah now mistake is different and we're going to talk about mistakes we're going to talk about mistakes I assure you okay um, the Chazonich did not allow it and, and, and the, the early uh, the early uh, poskim who talked about this said if we open up the door to doing artificial insemination everything else is going to come through that door we need to keep it solidly closed but as you can see from reading through this, this uh, little section thoughts have evolved starting from the Maharsham who was a contemporary of Divrei Machiel and um, he brings in the 10 year rule now where does the 10 year rule come in what's the source for the 10 year rule that's right now if a, if a couple is married for 10 years and uh, and they ha have no children then there is a, a potential for divorce that that, uh, that occurs and so he was responding to that and, and that 10 year rule has evolved somewhat over time 
into well, maybe not ten years, maybe five years, according to some post scheme, maybe two years. Maybe if you can be assured medically that there is no way that the couple can conceive scientifically and medically, except if they do artificial insemination, maybe that's just as good as the 10-year rule. And I can tell you that not that there are some couples, there are some couples who, after 10 years, the husband even, hasn't even had a semen analysis. But those are unusual. Um, what's, what's more common is that uh, they'll, they'll speak with a, a Rav and uh, the Rav will rely on medical fact to establish what is the likelihood of pregnancy occurring within that period of, of time. Because look at, from a practical point of view, how do we deal with that 10-year rule? I'm a doctor. A couple walks into the consultation room and I say, well, you know, I think you're going to need artificial insemination. Come back to see me in 10 years. It just doesn't fly. Especially today, you know, everybody is anxious and everybody is stressed out. There's virtually no couple, virtually no couple that at some point in the, in the process does not say, I know why I'm not getting pregnant. It's because I'm too stressed out. Everybody is stressed out. Everybody gets stressed when they have infertility. They certainly get even more stressed out when their friends tell them, oh, it's because you're too stressed out. <laughs> and, and, and when the infertility is prolonged and they have to go through all procedures and they have everything riding on one technique or, or certain technology and it doesn't work, they get nutty. And we're used to, uh, you know, our, our world is one of almost instant gratification. I have couples who come in to see me who are married for six months and I, and I have to convince them that they need to wait. Sometimes the, the woman is 21 or 22 or 23. You know, slow down, slow down a little bit and get a grip on how long it takes for normal fertility to occur. The idea of telling people to wait 10 years is just something that's interesting to read and to write, but it just doesn't fly from a practical matter because you basically you'd have to close down your operation. Yes, did you want to uh, opine? Okay. Um, <coughs> Now, it's interesting that the reason that the Maharsham uh, writes that it's only permitted with, if you're married for 10 years because of the severity of the sin. You know, it's very bad when couples are going through fertility therapy and they have a sense that what they're doing is actually not permitted. So, a sophisticated posek will explain to the couple and, and reproductive halakha is like reproductive medicine it's a specialty within a specialty and I always tell couples if you're going to ask somebody for pesach halakha make sure that you go to somebody who has some experience with these matters um, a sophisticated posek will give the couple the sense that he's not just bending all the laws to find a way to be lenient on their behalf 
but actually what they're doing is halakhically uh, sanctioned. And then the last part is about Rav Shlomo Zalman, who said you cannot, you cannot um, close the door on artificial insemination because there's really no reason to prohibit it. After all, you're using the sperm for the purpose that it was in, intended. Um, and of course, he brings, he, he brings in now the idea of it being done in the presence of a uh, trustworthy doctor and then another doctor to supervise, which is the concept of hashkacha, which addresses your concern about mistakes. So what is, what is hashkacha or pikuach, as they call it in, in Israel? The, the idea is to allow couples to use reproductive technologies and to respond to the concerns that seem to be consistent from posaic to posaic that the doctor has a vested interest in doing things that are unethical. Therefore, you need to make sure that the process is supervised just the same way that, for example, you would go to um, eat in a restaurant and although the restaurateur may be a shomer Torah mitzvot, he may have an interest in buying meat that's a little cheaper and maybe is really uh, taref. So you have to have a mashkiach in the restaurant. Uh, what's the worst thing that can happen if you go into a restaurant and uh, there's not proper hashkacha? So you're eating taref. That's bad. But it's not nearly as bad as if you get inseminated with somebody else's sperm that's not from your husband. So the idea of having a mashkiach that is there as an independent set of eyes um, tracing the flow from uh, the, the custody of the sperm from the husband to the laboratory where the sperm washing is done and then back to the, to the uh, woman who holds on to it until it's inseminated is very important. This brings up a big problem when we get to in vitro fertilization because that's not an hour in the laboratory, that's days and sometimes years. Yes. All of those concerns come into play. One is possibility of future incest. One is that the father will not, will, may have lived his entire life and thought he fulfilled the mitzvah of Peru and did not. And therefore, if he dies and he's really, and that's the only child he has, and that's not really his child, for his wife to remarry, there has to be chalitza. So there needs to be that. There are laws of inheritance, if he does have other children, that will be confounded uh, if that were to occur. And then there's the concern for the rulings of people uh, of the poskim who are not as lenient and who would say that no, you don't need physical contact to, in order for the laws of Mamzerut to take hold. If, the, if a woman is impregnated from the sperm of another man, not only is the child a Mamzer, but she is Asur to her husband. That's it, they shouldn't be married anymore. <coughs> okay, so I'll explain how that process works in, in IVF. Please make sure to remind me.
But I'll just tell you in order to respond to that, yes, chains of custody are important, especially in, um, in making sure that you have some quality control. It's especially important when there are legal ramifications. For example, in a sexual assault rape cases, it's very important to do a chain of uh, custody. Um, but that not, has not been accepted as a, a matter of standard of care in the world, in the real world of reproductive technology. So when you go to an when a couple goes to an individual practitioner and says, well, you know, I, I want my husband to stay in the lab and watch you wash that semen specimen, it's an insult. You know, and the laboratory workers think of it as an intrusion and a question of their ethics. They don't realize that what the couple is asking for is simply a way to satisfy the demands of halakha. Now, on the other side, there have been reports of mistakes. Not only reports of mistakes, there have been reports of intentional misuse of gametes. I mentioned the doctor who used his own sperm to inseminate uh, his patients. Uh, Cecil Jacobson, in 1995, was ironically one, he was a, a, a nationally known fertility specialist and ironically was a person who the Rabbanim uh, referred a lot of patients to because he uh, developed a procedure that, that uh, if you read, if you want to take certain stringencies, the gift procedure, that was more acceptable halakhically. And uh, he basically took spare eggs from his patients and use them for other patients who didn't have such good eggs without anybody's knowledge and he's uh, still in practice but he's a fugitive from the law in the United States uh, he, he escaped he's well he's in practice not in the United States he's in a South American country there are several cases of um, accidentally misused sperm and also misplaced embryos. We had one, uh, one case here in New York, in Staten Island, where the embryologist made an error and put in embryos from two different patients into the biological mother of one of those embryos and she gave birth to one white child which was her biological child and one black child who belonged to another couple that was going through IVF at the same time and 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 the problem and this happened in and this happened in Holland as well um, several years ago and the problem for the rabbis is that these are the ones that we know because they're, they're mixed-race uh, children. But if, if, she had had, if it was a white couple, they wouldn't have known. And, uh, and, and that's a problem. And it's a problem that we have to deal with every day. Of course, by the way, we do not offer that service at our place. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so... There are, look, when you never read about when the plane lands safely and it does hundreds of thousands of times every day. That is an example of a plane crash. And the truth of the matter is that there have been over a million babies born through IVF and uh, people go through the procedures and inseminations, etc., successfully and without incident tens of thousands of times every week. But 
there have been these cases and because the consequences are so profound we do need to have systems in place that answer the concerns of halakha and I'm going to get to how we do that <coughs> ok the, uh, the last part of this, uh, of this section was uh, the Tzitz Eliezer who also allows uh, artificial insemination as does uh, Rav Ovadia Yosef and uh, the, the last paragraph was uh, about collecting repeated specimens it's no longer done today so not um, not relevant <coughs> yes well we're going to get to Rabbi Tendler and we're going to get to his more famous father-in-law um, uh, whose Teshuvah I have uh, printed right here so if, I, if we can jump now to the next section which is section which is on page 12 of the Nishmat Abraham is the um, section on donor insemination now this is a much more um, emotionally charged issue as you will uh, see in just a few minutes and that's one of the reasons why I brought down the original Pesach Dean from um, Rav Moshe Feinstein in which he permitted the use of um, of, spone, of sperm donation so um, if you wouldn't mind just read those two pages 12 and 13 and then I want to take you through a little bit um, of the original uh, tissue vote okay if I can uh, <coughs> pick it up just in terms of time management I do plan to offer a break unless people need it now uh, in about, at about 3.15 <clears throat> that's about when I'm going to have to uh, make my call and I also want to leave enough time so that we don't need to rush through the last uh, topics does anybody um, have a sense that after reading what, you've, what, what is written here that donor insemination is something that's um, sanctioned by lots of rabbanim and that is widely practiced in God-fearing Jews, Sa- sanction meaning allowed, allowed. Oh. Well, that's what you would get from here, and that would be an extraordinary circumstance to actually avail yourself of artificial insemination by donor, have your family that way, and uh, and uh, be a person and send them to yeshiva, for example, um, but. In fact, that is not the case. Um, there are many there are many couples who, because they have no other choice, less and less, by the way, percentage-wise today, because we have such technology, where even if even for a man who has no sperm, by the way, just a clinical point not uncommon for people who do what I do to deal with uh, couples where the man has no sperm at all and they still can, ha- can have a full biological child because even men who have what's called azospermia there's no sperm at all in the semen they may have blockage they may have very uh, they may have blockage with completely normal sperm in the testicle 
then you can take that sperm and use it with in vitro fertilization. They may have very, very few sperm, just three or four, but you can use those for in vitro fertilization. Sometimes we do IVF and we have more eggs than there are sperm, and yet the woman walks home with a baby. So all of these things are possible, Don't and, and it's made the use of donor insemination much, much less common. However, there are men still who have no sperm anywhere and need to use donors. And those men, if they are, um, if they are God-fearing, uh, halakhically observant people, will ask their rav for a pose, for a psakalacha. And um, if, depending on the situation and how stressed they are and how their rav interprets the halakha, it's not uncommon for them to come to a person like me and to request donor insemination with the sperm from a goy. Relying on what seems to be an almost uh, insignificant opinion by Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein, a giant of halakha in, in, the, in the 20th century, who wrote uh, very clearly and in more than one place in his Igrot Moshe that donor insemination would be acceptable. And why would it be acceptable? Um, because, and I'm, again, I'm speaking only as a doctor who has had such couples, couples even who, who ostensibly look Haredi and who live Haredi lives, come in and, and request donor insemination. Where are they coming from? Well, it's uh, disgusting and it's repugnant and it's all those things that are written down over here. But remember that, that the Nishmat Abraham is following Rav Arbach and even Rav Arbach was posseic that a child that was born of donor insemination is not a mamzer and the, and the wife is not a sewer to her husband because no contact has taken place. Same thing if you do insemination before before a mikveh, there's, it's okay because no sexual contact has has occurred. So uh, these people are re relying on the teshuvah of Rav Moshe Feinstein, and even though it would appear from these two pages that that was insignificant, and he really he said it was allowed, but he didn't really ever allow people to do it. I have for you the actual reprints from the Igrot Moshe, and I thought I would read for you from the Hebrew some highlights, um, and then when we get through that, I think maybe we'll uh, go through IVF and then uh, go to the break. Go through IVF as an introduction, and then and then go to the break. So. If you wouldn't mind turning to the Igrot Moshe, it's the first Hebrew page. And this first responsum is addressing the idea of mixing the husband's sperm with donor sperm. And this is something that was commonly practiced, apparently, in the 1950s and 60s. And and uh, what they, that's what they used to do. And apparently they used to say, well, we're just boosting, we're helping the, 
the, your sperm being brought up into the uterus and the tubes by sperm from a, a healthy donor. And so Ralph Feinstein uh, s- says that uh, it, and go down to Siman Ayin Aleph, it's on the left side, on the left column on the bottom, and he says that. Uh, I wanted to, before I answered this question, I wanted to um, ask some expert physicians. This technique of, of, of combining sperm from, from an infertile man with the sperm of a donor shekorim booster hurak enyan ramaut it's complete quackery fakery they're fooling you and, he, and a lot of the response I'm here is talking about um, what does this really mean can the doctors ascertain that if you do that that really the man is having his own biological child and he goes through this and says if, if this is done then with certainty we establish that the baby is the baby of the, of the donor because the man himself the, the patient is infertile his sperm is not good and the scientists are telling us that we're getting, that we're getting a child that's the child of the donor um, so go to the next page on the right side where I have these arrows here and um, he writes Vidin zera acher miforash isur bataz and if you if you use uh, the semen from somebody else it's not allowed uh, as written in the Taz whatever Shevimi Shumarav Peretz quoting Rabbi Peretz of Corbey who lived in the 13th century who we talked about before a woman has to be careful to not lay on the sheets of that where another man had slept because she might become pregnant from the sperm of another uh, of another person but we know that that she shouldn't get pregnant that way even though we know that the that the the child is perfectly kosher because no physical contact has uh, has uh, occurred what's the reason there according to the taz and the only reason there is because we're concerned that there may be some incestuous relationship between the offspring of uh, of this uh, of, of this virgin conception and, and another offspring and that's the only reason and he goes on to, to say that here in this type of case we don't really have that uh, concern because why if you're using the donor uh, the donor sperm from a person who's not a Jew then what will happen what, what is the what is the ancestry of that child well the mother is Jewish, so the child has to be Jewish, and the status of that child will be that he has 
or she has no father, no halachic father, as if they had intercourse. What happens in the case of a, of a Jewish woman who has a non-Jewish, um, who has intercourse with a non-Jewish man and has a baby? Halachically, that child has no father. There's no halachic father, and so there's no, there's no, there's no question about future incestuous relationships because. Um, because as long as you're using the sperm from a goy. And then he goes on to talk about how the man has to produce the semen specimens. I don't want to get into that particular issue. Well, after he wrote this Teshuvah, he was, he was maligned by his colleagues. And the, the um, article that follows this one is sort of a summary of how people reacted to his, to his Teshuvah. But and he, and and he was publicly um, harangued for writing such a thing. So he writes another teshuvah. If you go to the next page, Siman Yud Aleph, he writes another teshuvah. Um, and I think it's nice to read a little bit from from the source. It says, "Hineki balti mechtav." I'm reading down on the right column. Hineki balti mechtavoha ruk meod hamalei devrei tochecha. I got a letter now that's filled with Devrei Tochecha and being uh, harangued and, 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 and corrected and he references his, his, his uh, previous Teshuvah that we just went through I'm being accused that my response, that I said it, that a child that was born of donor insemination is kosher, I'm being accused that that is going to cause promiscuity and a break in the kiddushah of, of Kalal Yisrael. And so he goes on to rebut point by point uh, what, what he's saying. And go to the next paragraph where I have the underline. Hine etem hadin hu it's a very very simple and and clear thing that if that the laws of of incest and arayot all forbidden relations are talking about physical contact bia means physical contact and it has nothing to do with where the sperm came from. And therefore he goes on to defend what he originally said. Turn the page and go down because we're running through because, you know, Judy questioned, can you get through 75 pages in three hours? I think we probably can't, but I'm going to try. So go down to the next one and I'll, I'll keep reading. And because the prohibition is on physical contact of bi'ah, of sexual intercourse, and so that prohibition does not fall on putting sperm by any other means uh, into the woman's body. It's not going to have any any um, impact on incest or on forbidden um, incest in the future. Umimela laka mamzerud, and there's for certain no mamzerud. Shehu rak mitzan maaseh habi'ah, 
שרק בזה נאמר בקרא באיסור אשת אב. So you can only have mamzerut if there is sexual intercourse. Go to the next paragraph. Um, he talks about שכולם הביאו מהגהת סמאק בשם הרב פרץ דאבלאק כשר שכתב כיוון שאין כאן ביאת איסור הבלאק כשר לגמרי because there's no sexual contact the baby is completely kosher it's very very clear there even if she gets pregnant from the sperm of a stranger this was written 700 years ago even if she gets pregnant from the sperm of a stranger as long as there's no sexual contact the baby is completely kosher and he cites some uh, other reference and there's no question that she's not forbidden to her husband there's no sexual contact and nobody or the rabbis of all the generations nobody ever said that this isn't tr- true uh, and those who wrote against me that the child would be a mamzer ain't no clue I, don't, I discount it completely. They don't have the power, the rabbis of our generation don't have the power to disagree with all the rabbis of the previous generations. They have no source for it and, and they have an outside reference. What, what, what's this varachitonit? It's an outside svara, an outside opinion. What, what, did, what did they say? They said, if the, if the goyim don't accept this, and we know that the Catholic Church doesn't accept donor insemination, how could it be that it's acceptable to a Jew? And he said, this is a foreign concept. We don't paskin from what the goyim hold. Vinishar, go down to the uh, the Barman page. Mashiach la Asur Mitzad Gzera Shema Yisa Achotome Aviv. So the only thing that we're worried about Shema Yisa Achotome Aviv, Mishum Shenachshav Vinoshel Bal Hazera. About Hazashayach Rak Bezera Shel Israel. That's only if the donor was a Jew. Velo Bezera Shel Nuchri Sheemit Yachesach Arab. If it's a sperm. Of a, of a donor it, it, the child does not go over after uh, th- that biological father halakhically and because most of the donors are goyim because most of the population here in the United States is, is Goyim. He didn't think that Jewish people would actually give their sperm for donation. Because it's not allowed. He thought that the all Jewish people might be um, worried about that. It doesn't, doesn't even come into consideration that we would be worried about that. Turn the page once more. Okay. Vehine barur shakevan she enomit yaches achara av because it doesn't it doesn't have yichus to the to the biological father. Shehavlad holech achar haem goes according to the mother. Bezerah shal nekri 
He just doesn't have a father. What was, what was the, another complaint against, uh, against the whole issue of donor sperm and donor egg as well? That the Shekhinah, there's a principle that the Shekhinah does not rest, the God's presence, uh, so to speak, does not rest on a person who has uncertain yichus. You don't know who your mother and father are. The Shekhinah it's uncertain because uh, of how this woman may have conceived okay so they said well now we're going to have uh, a question we don't know who the father even is he says let that's the that's the quote so you have to know with certainty who the parents was from a certain pasuk, there's no doubt here. We know. We know with certainty. He does not have a father. Halachically. His yichus is certain. He doesn't have a father. He has a mother. He's So that argument doesn't fly with me. And he goes on at the very end to close. All of the things that I'm saying are correct. In reference to all the holy things. All these, the noise that all the Rabbanim are making against me. Mr. Lake, if you listen to what I say, it flies away. Ah, even with all this he's telling to the rabbi who wrote against him and sent him this letter of he did a good job he tried to change my mind on this one but he didn't convince me I stand my, by my teshuvah Right. So this is coming from Rav Moshe Feinstein. Now, if you would have a, a ta'ana or a complaint against a Rav today who relies on the teshuvah of Rav Moshe Feinstein, who has a couple in great distress, and who, want, who has no other option of building their family and relies on this teshuvah to allow donor sperm you know, he's, that, that Rav is just walking in the footsteps of a giant. So, um, as a practical matter, even though clearly Nishmat Abraham has a, has a bias against this, um, uh, there, there is room to permit. Just as an aside, if you like to, if you have an interest in this, you can read the, the next article, which is sort of a historical analysis of what happened. I will tell you uh, just one part of it that the, the Rebbe Misatmar, Rav Joseph uh, Teitelbaum, wrote vehemently against Rav Moshe on this on this uh, thing, and his his idea was that it was the mixing of the egg and the sperm or putting the sperm in contact with the woman's body that was asur because you didn't need to have physical sexual relations in order to have a forbidden relationship and therefore 
anybody who would put his sperm inside of a woman who's not uh, of a woman who's not his wife is guilty of adultery and therefore and you couldn't lay the uh, adultery claim on the donor because he, he's a goy you don't know who he is so who was the adulterer the doctor the doctor that's correct so, well, the lab technicians only prepare it. The doctors have to, or the nurses, uh, do the insemination. So it's a, just a curious kind of position to be in. So needless to say, I personally hold like for most of it. Yeah. Nurses do the insemination, not the Artificial insemination is a technically very, very simple thing to do. It's, not a, it's a low-tech procedure, and nurses generally are trained to do insemination. Yeah. Is that something new? I've been in practice for 18 years and I've been working with nurses who do insemination. I would say in my practice, the nurses will do 90% of the inseminations. In my my practice, nurses do about 90% of the inseminations, uh, nurses or physician assistants. It's a very simple thing to be trained to do. Uh, You probably are aware that when it comes to you know, you know that term, the turkey baster. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, an intravaginal insemination. Uh, doing intrauterine insemination does require a professional who's trained because there's you need sterile technique. Um, you don't want to introduce infection, of course. But you can train uh, a nurse to do uh, artificial insemination. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Yes, you had a question. Oh, you, yeah. Three fifteen. Let's have that break. We're going to uh, come back, do IVF, and then get to uh, donor egg and try to finish up on time. I'm so sorry. It's so interesting. Um, I really appreciate it because I know you're very busy. Right. Oh, you want my email address? Or whatever way it's easiest to get you, I assume. Right. But you have to tell me where we met. What's your name? I don't know if we met. Franny Pollock. Well, we're, no, we're meeting now. Oh. <laughs> I think that's best. Uh, I will. I'll remind you to meet you at Drew's show. And I, I will. I really appreciate it because I'm driving from Philadelphia just to hear this. Let's call an end to the break because otherwise we will never get through IVF and egg donation in an hour and we certainly wouldn't get through the status of the embryo thing. So, IVF. Any burning questions from the last session? No. Good. Um, (coughs) By the way, just because I know this is being recorded somewhere, we've looked at the pregnancy rates from inseminations done by nurses and by doctors, absolutely no difference at all, just so you know. By the way, IVF, that is a procedure that only the doctors do because egg retrieval and embryo transfer are highly, highly delicate uh, techniques. Let me go over how we do that. So indications for in vitro fertilization medically are anatomical obstruction of the fallopian tubes as an impediment to conception, Uh, scar tissue around the tubes even if they're open, a condition called endometriosis which um, is the implantation of uterine lining outside of the uterus in the pelvis. It can be toxic to eggs and sperm and creates an environment that prevents conception. Uh, Unexplained infertility and that includes women who have explained infertility 
but don't get pregnant when you try to correct the problem. And when they have numerous failed attempts at therapy, it's still unexplained. And so they go through IVF. And uh, more new as an indication, relatively, is male factor that's severe. In standard IVF, what we do is mix the sperm and eggs together. We incubate them together. And overnight, you get fertilization and creation of the embryo. There's one... Uh, portion of the Talmud which I did not reprint for you because it's a little bit hard to explain but people ask when does the soul come in we don't know probably sometime overnight during that incubation period we've not seen it even with the most powerful microscope actually what we'll see later is the embryo itself the fertilized egg does not have the status of a human being and so maybe the soul comes in at the time of implantation. These are things that uh, are sort of neat to ponder, but we live there every day. Um, when we're de dealing with male factor, we do a variant of IVF called the ICSI procedure, which stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. The concern is that if you put the eggs and sperm together in the Petri dish, the sperm will be insufficiently strong to penetrate into the egg and cause it to fertilize. So what we do is physically, using a technique of micro-manipulation, lift up a single sperm in a tiny uh, drawn-out pipette and inject the sperm into the egg, and that causes it to fertilize. The physiologic principle behind that is that even in the worst sperm, that look abnormal and that function abnormally in terms of swimming um, and may look completely dead. If the sperm is alive, the problem is getting the sperm into the egg. The genetic material, which is all coiled up in that sperm head, is, however, normal. And if you can get the sperm into the egg, it will fertilize and if the genetic material in the sperm is normal and the genetic material in the egg is normal, then you'll get a genetically normal embryo and conception will occur. Fertilization, generally speaking, occurs in the fallopian tube. The whole IVF laboratory setup, which is a very laborious, sophisticated and highly regulated uh, technology is meant to duplicate the environment of the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube is not just a uh, pipe that's open on one end to the uterus and the other to the ovary. It has a very sophisticated function. Fallopian tubes can be open and not working. Uh, they need to nourish the embryo. They need to s propel the sperm in one direction, the fertilized embryo in the other direction towards the uterus, and they need to nourish the early embryo for approximately three to four days. Duplicating that environment uh, is tricky, um, but we have it down um, much better than, than, than we did uh, two decades ago. And now typical pregnancy rates for uh, young couples who go through IVF are at least 50% per try, um, whereas uh, in the early days you were talking in the single digits. So IVF is, a, is no longer an experimental technology. It's a very widely used technology, and I've outlined the basic procedures uh, in one of these uh, cartoons. The first part is stimulating the ovary. 
to make multiple eggs because we don't like to work with just one egg it makes it very inefficient especially when the couple is paying off money to have it done removal of the eggs done with a not risk less procedure but a very simple um, procedure it's done under anesthesia it takes about 10 minutes for the typical egg retrieval to be done there's no incisions it's done vaginally under ultrasound guidance uh, the typical recovery time after an egg, retri- egg retrieval is about 30 minutes. A um, couple goes home, we do our thing in the laboratory, and after somewhere between two and five days, the embryos are put back into the uterus. Placing the embryos into the uterus takes uh, about two minutes to do, uh, but it is a very delicate procedure. Embryos are not like sperm. They are not hardy. Uh, they're extremely delicate, and uh, they like to be handled just so. Having said that, once the physician team is past the learning curve, this does have a very high take rate. You, well, you can ask about learning curves in, 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 in all of medicine. What do you do in surgery? So there's a, there's a very long apprenticeship uh, to, to, to do this type of thing. Uh, again, even though we read all the time in the popular press that anybody can open up an IVF lab in their garage and their uh, kid can be the embryologist, etc., it does take uh, special licensure and training and years and years, etc., to train to do this type of thing. Um, in women below the age of 37, the guidelines, and there are guidelines for these things, and by the way, you can get penalized for violating the guidelines. That's in the United States. In, uh, in many European countries and or elsewhere around the world, there are laws regulating how many you can put back. In uh, Germany, for example, the law says you can only put back one each time. In the United States, we have guidelines uh, the guidelines for women under the age of 37 who have routine problems and are going through IVF is to put in two embryos. Um, 38 and, and, and above, you can put in three. Um, past the age of 40, you can put in up to four. Depends on, uh, on the particular circumstances. The idea now is that IVF has become so successful and there was a little bit of a lag time uh, between when we the success rate started to go up and people realized there were too many multi-fetal pregnancies. So now we've ratcheted down. Actually, those are new guidelines as of September 2004. Every IVF clinic in the United States reports um, its data on every couple that goes through the IVF, their IVF programs uh, to the Center for Disease Control. This, this procedure is highly regulated and... Um, and all patients have access to data, um, which how the data are compiled and how clinics admit patients is a topic for another day. But anyway, it, it is a, a very um, it, it's a it's a technology and a field that's under the microscope all the time. IVF in its earliest days, 1978. This is a a, a, a tissue va from. Rav Waldenberg that's on page uh, 15 I was going to give this to you to read but since we're trying to buzz through um, Rav Waldenberg was one of the first post scheme to, to uh, write about IVF in his Sitz Eliezer um, forbids the use of IVF and he does so for <coughs> the following reasons remember Sitz Eliezer 
said artificial insemination would be allowable with, of course, certain restrictions, for example, hashkacha. Um, why did he differentiate between IVF and artificial insemination? Is because artificial insemination occurs in the natural part anatomically. On the other hand, with IVF, you're taking the egg out and putting it in the laboratory, making the procedure completely artificial. Number two, when you're doing artificial insemination, you're using it in, under, in order to overcome the infertility of the man so you can give him permission to produce the semen specimen to overcome his own infertility. With IVF, and in particular in the early days of IVF, it was done mainly for tubal problems in women. Right? Louise Brown's mother had ectopic pregnancies several times. She lost the function of her tubes, and that's the reason that IVF was done. So uh, w there's no permission for a man to, to produce a semen specimen to overcome the problem in his wife. Um, three, he doubted that a child that would be born by IVF technology would fulfill the, um, the, the husband's mitzvah of piru urvu. And also he said, and this is a concern brought up by someone else, that how can you possibly assure that you're going to get back the right sperm and eggs or embryos because it's not like artificial insemination, which, by the way, he was not talking about washed sperm. You give the semen specimen to the, to the doctor and he puts it in for you. So, okay, for an hour to wash the sperm in the lab, you can have somebody there. But how are you going to assure the chain of custody over the course of the days that it takes to do IVF and he was very clear that uh, on those grounds he would not permit it <clears throat> on the other hand some other post scheme came along and uh, did allow it Rav Ovadia Yosef Rav El Yashiv who is still alive today and is considered one of the Gidolea post scheme uh, does allow it although with some restrictions to how many times that it can be used I've recently uh, had a case of IVF that was done for male factor where they had to do testicular retrieval of the sperm and the child had and the, and the couple had a child and wanted by his pisakdin from Rav El Yashiv and wanted to go through again and he didn't permit because he said you cannot uh, you cannot um, invade the testicle the second time after you've already had the baby so th there are um, there are restrictions there's the amount of time that you have to wait, there's how many doctors you need to consult with, etc., and also how many um, children. And there is a, a restriction if this is secondary infertility. You already have a child, are you allowed to go through IVF? And within that framework of secondary infertility, it, does it, ma it matters. Yes, it does matter if you have one boy or three girls where you technically have not fulfilled your mitzvah because you have to have at least one boy and one girl. Yes? The question needs to be the opposite. Can eggs be banked the way sperm are banked? Sperm banking has, is a technology that's been around for a hundred years. Uh, you can freeze sperm for decades and, um, and it can be functional. Uh, you can also 
freeze embryos that are left over from an IVF procedure. That technology is around for approximately 20 years. Um, last year in Israel, uh, they reported the birth of a child after the longest uh, time in the freezer, 13 years. Um, so this technology is there. Egg freezing for those women who are interested in uh, finishing their uh, studies at Drisha and going on to, uh, to higher levels of learning and maybe starting their family in another uh, decade or two. Um, egg freezing is not quite ready for prime time. So it's still in its investigational stages. Eggs are very, very finicky and hard to regain function from once they've been frozen. So that means that when we're dealing with sperm donors, we are talking about sperm banks that have lists of screen donors, screen for all infectious diseases, characteristics, pick from your list of a thousand donors. When we are dealing with egg donors, we're talking about live human beings who are going through procedures to give us fresh eggs that we can harvest and use right away. It's a completely different technology. Sperm retrieval from the testicle, yes. We do. When we, when we do testicular retrieval, if it's possible to get additional um, a, a testicular tissue or fluid for freezing for future use, of course we do that. The, the particular issue here that we're talking about, which I don't want to get into, is pitsuadaka, injury to the testicle. That's a whole other um, uh, uh, um, subject. And... It's the male, right. it's, it's a male thing, and and, uh, and for those of you who, who are curious, a man who's wounded in the testicle has a certain status, not and that where he's not allowed into the community of uh, uh, and and has a special status, and uh, to have uh, to induce a a medical wound. Um, may have a different status and since you're doing it for fertility procedures most post scheme allow um, testicular biopsy or aspiration or opening the testicle but only under certain circumstances and there is a whole halakhic literature about pitsuadaka in the context of fertility therapy um whether or not embryos that have not been transferred to the uterus have the status of uh, a human being where you're being mechalel shabbat for them. For example, if you have embryos in your freezer and every IVF clinic has thousands of embryos in, in, in the freezer for whatever the reason, um, they belong to the couples and we just store them in our place. What happens if you have a, an electrical emergency on Shabbat? Can you... Um, can you be Mechalel Shabbat for embryos? Um, this is all written down on pages 15 and 16 and 17 in the uh, Nishmata reprint that I've given you. I <coughs> thought that instead of reading through that, I might just turn your attention to the fact that following the English reprint in Nish, of Nishmat Abraham, I have for you a reprint of the original Teshuvah from Rabbi Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer, and it's really, really fascinating to read through. Um, 
he goes through the particular objections that he has um, to to IVF, and if you, for those who have the Hebrew text in front of them, if you turn to page uh, 87 on the upper left hand side and go to the right column, okay. Um, he talks about how surprised he is that um, people ha- who have asked him the question about, about IVF told him specifically that in this particular procedure we're talking about sperm that are from the husband of the woman who's going through the procedure. And why is that astounding to him? Because they speak so lackadaisically about the use of donor sperm and because he held that donor sperm was not allowable, he writes, the imkacha hadavar, if this is the way that it is, haret sadku efo otam hamorim, then if that's the case, then those who forbade insemination were right. Because look at all of the problems that have come for this. That first they allowed insemination, and now it's gone to donor insemination, and people use it in a very cavalier way. Um, and, and those people who didn't allow it, they didn't tell you why they didn't allow it. They just said, it's not allowed, you can't do it. <coughs> and the reason that they did that is, he didn't want, and the, those poskim didn't want anyone to fool around with their logic. They just said, it's not allowed, and they didn't give reasons for it. And, um, okay. In the next thing he writes down that in the next in the, in the next paragraph up on the left hand side he said how can you trust the promises of people who speak so cavalierly about using donor sperm okay in the test tube baby uh, technique in fertilization in vitro how can you trust them that they're only going to use the sperm and eggs of the couple? Whatever they're telling you, it's useless. Don't even listen to them because you cannot trust the medical establishment. And then he goes on in, in, the, uh, in the second section to talk about that uh, this is a female problem that um, that's causing the husband to to uh, emit sperm uh, and and therefore it can't be allowed. And then in the third section, he says, if you do this, and this is important, if you do this, then you're not. Then the child is wondering if the child. The birth of the child will allow the husband to fulfill the mitzvah piru And he holds that you don't. Because the procedure is so unnatural where the woman loses custody, loses her, 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 her natural connection to the egg that the child does not fit into the category where he is halakhically related to the biological parents. And in the... In the because the woman's egg is being removed from her body from the natural place of conception 
she's not considered the halachic mother and the father and the father of course is not considered the halachic father because unlike sperm insemination where fertilization is occurring in her body in the natural place you're just assisting it to get a little bit higher into the tract this is completely unnatural and is happening in the laboratory dish and the fourth part he specifically says uh, there's no halachic connection now between the, the baby and, the, and the, the biological parents in the instant that they're taking the egg from her body and they're taking it away from its natural place the connection between the egg and the woman is, is batel it becomes uh, irrelevant no it doesn't, it doesn't come back no now it's, a, it's like a surrogate Okay, which we'll get into what we'll have. Then, interestingly enough, he also puts in the fifth section, he writes down about cloning. It hasn't been done yet. He preceded the advent of cloning by, uh, by 15 years. And he says, if this is what you're going to allow, the end result will be tichpul enoshi. You're going to start human cloning and you'll have a complete, uh, complete chaos. And then in the last section, he talks about how impossible it is to have how impossible it is to have supervision of this uh, procedure. And because of all of these problems, he doesn't allow it. Interestingly enough, after the author of Asya, where this is printed, prints the, the, the uh, response from the Sith Eliezer, he also writes down all the reasons why some contemporary post-scheme do not agree with Rabbi uh, Waldenberg and therefore uh, a lot of people um, permit it, a lot of post-scheme permit it. And as it has come down through the ages most contemporary post-scheme do allow IVF for reasons that have to do with the obvious biology if you're using sperm from the husband and eggs from the wife you can't deny that there's a genetic connection that's just biology at its best and uh, there are ways to supervise it and you have issues of Shalom Bayit and you have issues of Piru Urvu which most people um, say that the child does uh, fulfill the mitzvah of Piru Urvu for the parents yes I'm sorry He's still alive, if you'd like to go and ask him, but he's unwell, actually. But that was the basis of his halakha. And, and it's hard to argue with that, because after all, the, 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 there's no precedent, really, for, for, for what happens halakhically when you remove the gametes from the body. This is the first time... Remember, this is 1981, I think, three years before, after IVF was invented. So what are the halakhic precedents for, for IVF? There really are none. So you have to think of what are, what are the obstacles? Well, you're taking it away from the body. Well, you don't have a, a chain of custody. It's not like you're actually changing the nature of How do you know? 
how, how do you know that the nature of physical change that the nature of, the, of that biological entity is not changed once you remove it from, from the body you should, if you're familiar you should read the, the Pesach because it's in there he has a whole paragraph about what, what that means yeah IVF has been around as I said for 26 years there have been numerous neurodevelopmental studies on uh, um, children born not only through IVF but also through the ICSI procedure which is a sub-variant of, of IVF and they seem to all be doing well there is a concern it's a report um, two years ago from Western Australia where they looked at babies born from IVF, from ICSI, and from uh, naturally occurring pregnancies. And they did report a twofold incidence of congenital anomalies. Now, now, now wh- wh- what does that mean? So the background of that, first of all, the only report in the medical literature. There are many, many other reports that show that there's no difference. This is limited to a place in Western Australia where they happen to keep such data. The background rate of congenital malformations is 3%. Take all babies born through natural conception, delivery, 1% have major abnormalities, and 2% have minor. What they found, and there was no difference, interestingly enough, uh, there's no difference between whether they were conceived through ICSI or through non-ICSI in vitro fertilization. They found 2% major and 4% minor. Um, now, those abnormalities are not necessarily incompatible with life. Sometimes they're surgically correctable, etc. So, when you're, so what, what it means is that even according to their data, 94% of the time there was nothing and 2% of the time there was a major abnormality. Couples who are faced with, with infertility that needs to be treated uh, have to look at those statistics because they're there, they're part of the medical literature and believe me, again, having dealt with this field of medicine for a very long time, one of the hardest and the best parts of dealing with uh, infertility um, is that the couples who come to the office are among the most sophisticated clientele that ever visit a medical doctor's office. They have been compared to, uh, to patients who have cancer. They come in having read textbooks. They're chatting on the internet. They come in with papers. They know everything. And there are support organizations that give them mounds of literature. So there is no couple, basically, that we deal with that doesn't know the CDC statistics and doesn't know about this report from Western Australia and doesn't know about uh, different uh, imprinting abnormalities. There are now question mark um, higher in, um, in IVF pregnancies. So these are all problems, but when the alternative is to just never have a child, most couples opt to have the baby, especially when the plane lands safely 95% of the time. We take care... Okay, reproductive endocrinology is a subspecialty of OBGYN, so we're all gynecologists. When a man has to be treated... Uh, surgically or medically, they go to urologists who ha- have special expertise in treating male infertility. But there is very little that actually can be done to cure 
male fertility. There are certain things that are completely correctable, but a very large portion of male infertility, after they finish with their evaluation by the urologist, bounces back into the purview of the reproductive endocrinologist because we have to deal with the business end, which is always the woman, until we can grow the entire baby in the test tube. No, 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 no. The same, well, the semen specimen is always given to us by the husband. If there needs to be a surgical removal of the sperm, it's done by a urologist, usually in our operating room, and usually there is a mashkiach that is actually in the room while that's done, and the chain of custody stays. So for those of you who are interested in how we do pikuach or hashgacha for in vitro fertilization, there is a staff of mashkichot, usually, because the mashkicha has to be in, in, in all IVF laboratories, there's an operating room and, uh, and a, a laboratory side by side with a large window through which the, the um, aspirate that is retrieved from the ovary is sent to the scientist. We can't see the eggs that we're taking out of the woman. We can only see egg follicles. So we aspirate the fluid and we have a little test tube of fluid that goes to the, to the embryologist. Depending on how, many, um, how the woman is responding to the medication, there may be 20 test tubes of, of fluid, and they identify the eggs. We may give them 20 uh, the tubes. They may find 10 eggs. They may find 8. They may find 2. They may find 30. It depends mainly on the age of the woman and how she's responding to the medications. Those eggs are then cleaned, isolated, and, um, and, and then later on mixed with the sperm. The mashkicha has to be present during all of those stages. Then what happens? After the eggs and sperm are put together in the same little droplet and left to be in the incubator overnight, the mashkicha locks the incubator and only she has the key to that incubator. And the next morning when the embryologist is there to check to see if the eggs have been fertilized, she has to be there and unlock the incubator and stay there while the check is done and the embryos are put back in the, <coughs> in the incubator. And she's there every day. And when the woman comes back a few days later to get the embryos transferred, she's there to unlock the uh, incubator and make sure that the embryos go back to the right patient. Again, this is there, the, the system is in place in order to prevent mistakes, not, not chicanery. Is that done everywhere? No, that's done in our place, I believe, is the only clinic in the United States that has an on-site Hashgacha program. But in Israel, this is done in many, many places. And there's actually a, a, an organization called Machon Pu'ah that will send Mashkichot to various hospitals if a, cu if a couple is going through IVF and request that. What do we do with the spare embryos? The spare embryos are frozen under the watchful eye of the mashkicha and they are put into a locked tank to which only the mashkicha or the rabbi who's supervising has the key. They're sealed, stamped, and they go into that um, specially locked container. Nobody can access it unless the mashkicha is present. So nothing happens without that person there. When you have natural emanation, um, um, you don't wash anything. What are you washing? When you have 
artificial insemination, as I said before, we're generally talking about intrauterine insemination. When we do intrauterine insemination, we always wash the sperm before we put it into the womb. No, we don't wash the eggs. We pluck the eggs out of the follicle fluid so that they can be isolated and then combined with the sperm when we're doing IVF. Okay? So there is a way to have a program of hashkacha, and that answers a lot of the problems that were raised by people like the Tzitz Eliezer. Uh, having said that, he did predict that there would be situations like this, which we've already spoken about, that happened in our area of uh, birth mix-up. Now, <coughs> we can get to uh, the uh, last contentious issue, which is egg donation. There's a very short paragraph maybe even worth reading out loud because it's so short, on ovum donation. It's page 14, the next English page, from the Nishmat Abraham. Rab El Yashiv Shlita told me that this was prohibited, whether from a stranger or from a member of the family. And somebody said that, it was, that he had permitted it and he wants to let us know he never changed his mind and he brings down uh, two other post-scheme that did not permit it. So it would seem to be a closed book. What are the sources for egg donation? And I'm going to try to buzz through this really quickly. But people, the early uh, responses on egg donation have actually tried to find um, halakhic precedent for egg donation in the Talmud. Okay, let's get to the first reprint of the of the Gemara this is in Berachot Daf Samach Amud Aleph and it says there oh this is just this is just Agadah which we know we don't uh, we, we don't make Pesach Halacha from Agadah but the legend has it that when um, that when Rachel when Leah was pregnant with Dina she was actually pregnant with a boy. And she, this was her seventh pregnancy. And she said, if I'm pregnant, and, and, uh, and uh, when, I'm sorry, when Leah was pregnant with Dina, she was actually pregnant with a boy, and Rachel was pregnant at the same time. And she said, if, I'm, if I have a boy now, it's going to be the seventh Shevet. I'm going to be the responsible for more than 50% of the Jewish nation. I, and, and my sister only has one boy has no boys w- w- this is not right so the, according to the Agadah Hashem switched the babies in their wombs and she gave birth to Dina so the, uh, the Gemara brings this down and says Ahar Shema Dina my Ahar what does it mean afterwards what is afterwards she gave birth and, and it was a girl and she called her Dina. Amarav lacha shed dana din ba'atma. She did a consideration in herself. Va'amra, yud bet shivatim atidin latzed miyakov. There's going to be 12 shivatim, shisha yatsumi many. Va'arba'a mina shifachot. And the concubines had four. Hariyasara. In zezachar, if my baby is a boy, lotiyachati, and she's not even going to be like yachana shifachot. She's going to be less because each of them had two. Rachel's only going to be uh, potentially have one. 
So God changed her to to a, changed the baby to a girl. So that legend that the babies were switched and why was she called Dina? It was her. It was considered to be her daughter, even though it, she was conceived by her sister. So I say, well, must be that whoever gives birth to the baby is considered to be the mother. But we don't make Pesach Din on the basis of Agadah. So, even though it's a nice story and it tells you about the tender feelings of uh, Leah for her, for her sister Rachel, you can't, uh, you can't go by that. So, other sources have been found, the next of which is in Yevamot, Nun Gimel Amud Bet, which I have reprinted from, from, for you. Um, it says, at the bottom of the page, underlined, before we get to that, there's a principle that in Gerut, in conversion, if a person converts, they lose their their connection to their parents, right? They're like, they're reborn. Okay? So they don't have parents. There's no, there's no relationship. If two brothers would convert, halakhically they're not brothers anymore. Because they're new, they, they start afresh as soon as they're converted. So the Gemara is talking about a case of a woman who's pregnant with twins and while she's pregnant she undergoes conversion. Look at this. Tashima. Shene achim te'omim gerim v'chein meshukharim lo chosim v'lo meyabnim The law of Yibum does not uh, does not hold. Ve'en chayavim mishum eshet ach So if two two brothers two twin brothers convert and one of them uh, one of them dies childless there's no law of Yibum and Chalitza because they're not halachically brothers the 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 um, relationship was severed at the moment that they converted okay Hayta horatan but what if they were conceived as goyim, because their mother was a goya, veledatan b'kdusha. And then, during the pregnancy, she converted and she became a gera, and now she's a full Jew. Lo chatzim v'lo miyavmin. The same laws will apply. Aval chayavim mishum eshet ach. They're still considered to be brothers. The, the rest is, is obvious. So the Gemara is telling you that they still have the halachic status of brothers, even though the conversion severed their relationship. And why? And there's only one explanation for why they can be brothers, because when they were born, that's what made their mother their mother. She she underwent the conversion process. Okay, and now she's the mother. She's the mother of both of them. If it if it was at the, if you established maternity at the time of conception, right? Whoever whoever egg was fertilized. So if she was pregnant and she converted, she would sever her relationship with those two twins. But because it's the act of giving birth that causes a woman to have halachic maternity doesn't matter that she converted 
she was a Jew when she gave birth, therefore she's the halachic mother, and they're halachically brothers. Ah, different, different, different item, different item. Don't complicate matters for me. I just want to talk about maternity. I don't want to talk about brotherness, okay? Because that's what they're using this for. Right, right. Okay. So, so this is one source that will tell you that it's obvious that parturition, giving birth to the baby, is what what makes the halachic maternal status fall. Okay. Now, is there another way to look at things? So, at the early days of egg donation, this was looked at as the guiding halakhic principle that whoever, for those who would allow it, that whoever gave birth to the baby is the halakhic mother, it doesn't matter where the egg came from. Then another response came into the literature and by the way others have since come through but this is such a fascinating thing that you can find a proof for egg donation in the Gemara and here's another one from Kulin Dafayin Amud Aleph this is talking about a farmer who is experimenting with his, his animals Hidbik Shenei Rachamim Recham is I love this part by the way just Idea. Rachamim. Rachamim. The 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 of Rachamim is Rachem. It's just think about it. But anyway, Hebikshne um, Rachamim. He joined the uteri of two different animals together, and there was a fetus inside the first one. Went from the womb of the first animal and into the second animal. Mahu, okay. Now they're talking about petarechem, the 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 um, the the laws of the firstborn, right? You have to you have to uh, you, you have to redeem the firstborn, even of the animals. So this animal that gets born now. Is it considered a petarechem, the opening of the womb of the first, where it was conceived, or of the second, who gave birth to it? Mahu, dide patah, delav dide lo patah. So, did it open the womb of the first one, or did it open the womb of the second one, delav dide? O dilma, or should we say, the lovely day Maybe it it opened up the womb of the second one too. And the answer is a teku. So there's no answer. We, the the, the Rabbanim Chazal did not know how to answer that question. I'm also not going to discuss what the teku means. But the very fact that the, that this question was posed gave an opportunity for somebody to ask the following. Be, listen to the language of the Gemara when it says Didei Patar did it open up the womb of Didei of the one that it belonged to or did it open up to the one that it didn't belong to if it talks about the one that it didn't belong to that it belonged to and it didn't belong to and it refers to the one that it belonged to as the original one where it conceived where it was conceived must be that it's conception, not delivery, that it's conception, that
that causes the halachic maternity. So this source is using <coughs> is being used to show that it's the donor of the egg that is the halachic mother and not the one who gives birth to the baby. And still, it's halacha, it's halacha. You can, uh, you can go from, from one to the other and it does give you some source to deal with. I will only tell you that some of the world um, is very opposed to egg donation, certainly the Haredi world, also because of the concern of Yichus and not knowing exactly who the, who, who, who the um, halachic parents might be. Um, but there's a significant um, number of halachic authorities who do permit egg donation, including in Israel, where now it's become very widely accepted. And to a certain degree, here in Israel as well because it, here in, in the United States as well because it seems so obvious that the woman who gives birth to the baby is actually the halachic mother so in the early days when people were allowing this to happen and, when, and, 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 and for us to use this technique and they didn't have a concern for who the donor was because the, 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 whoever gave birth to the baby was the baby. So, it doesn't matter who you use. Better to use a Goya. Why is it better to use a Goya? First of all, you don't have questions of future incest, like we said for donor sperm. And second of all, a Goya, who you don't know, has something better about her than a Jewish woman. What could be? What could it be? There's no, you don't have to know her, her yichus because Goyim don't have an issue of Mamzerut. You don't care what was the lineage of the Goya, of the donor. <clears throat> so maybe it's better to use a, a non-Jew. Then the Halakha further developed and the concern that maybe the donor had some hold to be a Halakhic mother as well and who, what, who among the rabbis would want to discount even the minority opinion of great Gedolim so, and also because of concerns that if that is true then the baby might require conversion so I will tell you just as a doctor not as anybody who knows anything about halacha but most of the couples who come to our clinic re- requesting egg donation come Requesting that we have a Jewish donor for them, and the, and many of the poskim, like I believe Rav Mordechai Liao, Rav Ovadia Yosef, who allow egg donation, will say that the donor has to be um, Jewish and the donor has to be single, because it couldn't be a woman who, if they, if she were having natural relations with the husband, it would be considered arayot. So the woman can't use the infertile woman can't use her sister right? because a man is not allowed to marry two sisters so now the world has turned in circles now and now we mainly use Jewish egg donors and that's why most people come to our clinic because we can assure them that the donors are in fact Jewish because we have ways of uh, looking at the lineage of the donor when these children grow up from this egg and then 
So in order to prevent the possible the possibility of future incestuous relations, what we do is give non-identifying information to the um, recipient that can potentially be used and we keep of course the information it's completely anonymous nobody knows it the donor doesn't even know if a baby ever resulted from the donation but because we have the potential to disclose and to match and to prevent and we also give non-identifying information to the recipient this is enough for many poskim who allow egg donation to be comfortable with that and then there's no issue of conversion of the baby you have a question. Um, so, I guess the uh-huh. so, so, using surrogacy, which flips around the idea, surrogate, gestational surrogacy is when the, the donor is the actual infertile woman who can't carry the baby, and she's asking somebody else to, um, to carry the baby for her to term, but it's genetically hers. And if you say that whoever gives birth to the baby is the halakhic mother, that certainly poses a problem. And I don't think that there's a good way to deal with that problem. But I did, I will tell you, I did speak with um, a, a, a Rav here um, who had a, well, I could say it was Rabbi Berman. I, I asked him specifically about this. And he, he had a very nice shita. He said, it matters what is the intent of the procedure. If the intent of the of the donor is to give away her egg, kind of like the Tzitzeliezer told that, she's making it have care. It belongs to whoever is using that egg and gives birth to the baby. But if the intention of the mother who can't carry the baby is not to let go of her egg, she just wants to have the baby and she's retaining intentional custody of that egg and that embryo, then surrogacy using that shita would keep the halachic maternity with the egg donor, which would be the genetic mother in that case. I, I, I like that shita. It makes sense to me, but who am I to say anything about it? Surrogacy is very complicated, and especially if the, the surrogate is a goya. Yes, it matters very much. And it's very clear if the surrogate is a goya, the baby needs conversion. And because conversion is such a difficult issue today, people are not so comfortable with conversion. So those who allow surrogacy insist that the surrogate be Jewish. And here's the tough part. Because we're concerned that the third party who is involved in third-party reproduction not be someone who would be otherwise impermissible to the husband, she can't be a married woman. So what single woman is going to be a gestational surrogate and medically we don't use surrogates who have not been through a full-term pregnancy. So as a practical matter, the only kosher surrogate potentially would be a woman who's divorced or widow or widow no and then after so after the she gives birth to the baby and gives back the baby to the biological parents then she can get married but she shouldn't be married at the time that she goes through that pregnancy 
So it's not easy to have infertility and to be a person who is living by the guidelines of halakha and certainly there are a complete range of opinions on on everything I've said in particular when it comes to third party reproduction. Any questions about that? I think we're going to leave leave it right there since we've come to the, the end of the session. For anybody who's interested in how the halakhic process developed, I've <coughs> given you some actual she'elot uh, and chuvot that were generated by me um, a, a number of years ago. These are and 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 they have become part of the um, the the code of response literature on assisted reproduction. And I didn't particularly choose the ones that, that, that I asked because I asked them. I wanted to go through with you how beautiful and simple the answers are when it comes to these rather complicated questions. But for those of you who are familiar with how to read the Hebrew, enjoy it. These are very short and, and very beautifully and clearly written. And uh, thank God we have uh, Poskim today who can write so clearly and think so clearly and make the uh, halakha and Torah, Torah chayim, that's responsive even to the newest developments uh, like we have today in reproductive medicine. I thank you all for your attention. If there's any burning questions, if there's any burning questions, you could, the group can decide. You could either ask, I have time, you could either ask them in the group or you can come up and ask them individually. No, that's not my book, but my new book happens to be coming out in the spring. It's called Overcoming Infertility, A Guide for Jewish Couples, and uh, there's the plug. We did discuss why Peru Urvu applies only to men. The traditional answer to that is that women cannot be, uh, is that a person cannot be obligated to do something that would risk put put him or her in at physical risk, and because childbirth is substantial physical risk, especially back in the old days, women did not have that mitzvah. Don't don't be overly clever now. So if you had it your way, no, even men would not have uh, would not have that mitzvah. <laughs> okay, well. Ask your own posseg. Who The question is, who is penalized for, for dropping of three drops of... Uh, um, well, we know the, the, the story of Aaron and Onan is from the, uh, is from the Bible. And, and on, on, Onan, and they were... The traditional explanation is that, is that when Onan, Er died childless, Onan um, married the, the widow... And he's supposed to build his his brother's name with the widow, and he would practice coitus interruptus, hence called onanism. He would he 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 would um, pull out at the last minute and and spill his seed. And in traditional rabbinic literature, this has been uh, the wasting of the seed has been equated to murder. To murder, and what's interesting is that when the a microscope was invented and the earliest people who used the microscope drew the sperm 
They say, I think we can see the little baby inside the sperm, and the theory of the homunculus in the sperm got a lot of credence. The rabbis finally had their explanation now of why wasting the, uh, spilling the seed it was equivalent to murder because there was the little baby inside. <laughs> Well, it wasn't always the little man. Anybody else? Okay, well, thank you very much, and uh, I enjoyed this session.